3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Welcome, welcome to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR on 855 AM. It is a beautiful morning. It is. It is a beautiful, beautiful morning to celebrate 100 years of radio on this continent. Good morning, Leela Also. Good morning. It's good to be back in the studio with you both. Yeah. And I mean, it is pretty exciting. Spike um, was saying, unfortunately, Spike's not with us in the studio today, but you're going to be hearing his voice in a pre-record shortly after we have this little chat. But Spike was saying how amazing it is that there have been 100 years of incredible broadcasting and programming um, across so-called Australia. from, yeah, the very first radio station that was started here and eventually everything being connected up and all of us having the ability to do incredible community radio. So throughout the show, you're going to hear a couple of reflections from us about the value of community radio and some little facts about, um, you know, what's been happening over the past 100 years. Uh, There's been a lot. Um, But... Yes, yeah. 100 years. So exciting. Um, but yeah, we might just jump into the rundown for what we've got on today. So first up, uh, have you ever wondered how to shut down capitalism, protect the habitat of your favorite marsupial, or even write an angry letter to your member of parliament? If you have, then our interview with Ian McIntyre from the Commons Social Change Library is a must listen. The Commons Social Change Library is a service that documents the collective wisdom of people who have engaged in social change struggles and campaigns in so-called Australia and the world. And now in part one of that interview, Spike speaks with Ian about a definition of social change and why it's important that information about the struggles uh, that we have already gone through and that we're still going through can be accessed freely. And Spike and Ian also talk about why documenting struggles helps us to achieve social change and the first steps taken in a social justice campaign. And after that, we are going to welcome two Gudamalaigal leaders, Wadawam Pabai Pabai and Wadawam Paul Pabai. In 2021, Uncle Pabai and Uncle Paul brought a class action known as the Australian Climate Case against the Commonwealth Government of so-called Australia. And today we'll hear from Uncle Pabai and Uncle Paul the direct impact that climate change is having on the Zenodeth Kes region, on the lives, cultures and futures of Gudamalagal communities and beyond. And we're also going to be joined by Ruby Mitchell from Grata Fund, a specialist non-profit litigation fund working to support the case. And then uh, this year, we know that it is a 100-year anniversary of the first radio broadcast in Australia on the 23rd of November 1923. Since that time, radio has seen a source of entertainment, information, companionship to generations of people. Today, we'll be commemorating 100 years of radio in so-called Australia by welcoming 3CR chairperson Pilar Aguilera to Thursday Breakfast, who is participating in the discussion 100 years of radio, tuning in or fading out. 
Radio past, present and future at the Eureka Centre tonight in Ballarat. Amazing. And to cap off our show for today, we're going to be joined by documentary maker, writer and broadcaster on 3CR's Women on the Line program, as well as veteran broadcaster on many programs, including The Breakfast Shows, Senya, uh, who's going to be joining us to discuss the upcoming NARM premiere of the documentary Fly in Power, which weaves a story of Asian sex workers, community care, solidarity and organizing for justice and labor rights. The documentary, which Sen produced, follows Charlotte, a Korean massage worker and core organizer of Red Canary Song, a social justice collective of Asian diasporic massage workers, sex workers and allies who base build through mutual aid. Now, through Charlotte's story, we're going to learn how the incarceration system is pitted against Asian migrant women and their survival. Now, this is a reminder for all listeners. Um, if you're tuning in after seeing our social media, then you already know about this. But Zen has offered two free tickets to the premiere for 3CR listeners. So please make sure to send us a direct message on Instagram at, at 3CR Thursday Breakfast. That's at 3CR Thursday Breakfast on Instagram to go in the running to claim them. Now, Fly and Power is going to be premiering next Thursday, the 30th of November from 6 to 9 p.m. at 229 Victoria Street, Brunswick, co-hosted by Vixen Collective and Red Canary Song. And so we will have all of the information about that in our show notes. Uh, We'll have the link to our Instagram handle. Please shoot us a message. Um, We would love to give these tickets away, especially to someone who is um, within uh, the sex worker community, although I believe sex workers go free. Um, But if you're interested in going, we would love as many people as possible to get there. I think this is such an important and self-determined film that so many people should be seeing. And it's already won a couple of awards as we will be discussing with Sen. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 23rd of November. Israel has agreed to a four-day pause in fighting to allow for the entry of humanitarian aid into besieged areas and the exchange of hostages between Hamas and the Israeli government. This comes seven weeks after the current bombardment of Gaza which has seen more than 14,100 people killed, 45% of homes destroyed, direct bombings of hospitals, schools and refugee camps, and mass forced displacement of more than 1.7 million Palestinians. However, Palestinian advocates 
have warned that while the pause may give Palestinians a chance to bury their loved ones, access food and medicine, Israel have made it clear that the genocidal acts on Gaza will begin again after the four-day pause ends, the timing of which is still being negotiated. The Australia-Palestinian Advocacy Network, or APAN, is calling on the international community to use their announcement of the four-day pause as an opportunity to secure a permanent ceasefire and an end to Israel's war crimes and an illegal siege on Gaza. Also in headlines, with a warning, this story contains mention of a First Nations person who's died. The family of a Noongar man who died in custody after a police chase earlier this month are calling for the release of body cam footage of the incident. On the 9th of November, 28-year-old Jeffrey Winmar was pursued by multiple police units in Reservoir, was taken into custody by police and died in hospital two days later. Mr Winmar's family have expressed deep concern about police conduct and said they have received conflicting information about the incident and are still waiting for answers about what happened. A vigil was held at the Auntie Alma Thorpe gathering place in Preston to honour Mr Winmar last week, with attendees gathering to remember the young man and also to call for justice and truth about what happened in the period between his arrest and hospitalisation. Mr Winmar became the third First Nations death in custody in the past month. In other news... 22 Tamil and Iranian women who have been on short-term bridging visas for more than 10 years have arrived in Narm, Melbourne this week after walking back from Canberra to highlight the devastating impact of living with visa uncertainty for 10,000 refugees in Australia. The women said they embarked on the walk because of the desperation they and thousands of others feel about Australia's fast-track policy. The walk from Canberra to Narm, Melbourne, was the first of a series of forums the women are hosting to encourage action for the 10,000 refugees awaiting permanent residency. And finally in headlines, the United Nations World Food Program says food aid for 1.4 million people in Chad, including newly arrived refugees fleeing violence in Sudan, will end in January because of a shortage of funds. More than 540,000 refugees have crossed from Sudan into Chad since war erupted seven months ago, with many fleeing from West Darfur, where ethnically driven violence and mass killings erupted again, again this month, pushing thousands more people to flee. United Nations officials say there is not enough international interest in the crisis and they are underfunded and need more than 280 million Australian dollars to support the people in Chad for the next six months. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 23rd of November, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. 
You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchus Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And now we are going to our very first interview. If you've ever wondered how to shut down capitalism, protect the habitat of your favourite marsupial, or even write an angry letter to your Member of Parliament, if you have, then our interview with Ian McIntyre from the Common Social Change Library is a must-listen. The Common Social Change Library is a service that documents the collective wisdom of people who have engaged in social change struggles and campaigns in so-called Australia and the world. Um, and is committed to making that information freely available to facilitate the changing of social injustice. In part one of Spike's interview with Ian, they discuss a definition of social change and why it's important that information about the struggles can be accessed freely. And they also discuss why documenting struggles helps them achieve social change and take the first steps in a social justice campaign. Have you ever wanted to stage an industrial action that would shut down capitalism? Have you ever wanted to learn how communities save possum habitat? What about picketing a fur retailer? If any of the above struggles or actions pique your interest, then the conversation with our next guest on Thursday Breakfast is a must-listen. Please welcome Ian McIntyre to the show. Ian is a member of the Common Social Change Library and today he's going to speak to us about what the Common Social Change Library is and why it's important to document and make freely available the collective wisdom of people who engage in social change. Welcome, Ian. Thanks. (laughs) Okay, so what is social change? And why is, it important, why is it important to be able to access information about struggles and campaigns in common? And how does documenting a struggle, yeah, how does document, documenting struggle help with achieving social change? Yeah, so I guess social change, from my perspective, will be sort of writing injustice, making the world a better place and creating social structures that kind of assist rather than, um, you know, hurt people. Um, so that's very broad. Um, for me, yeah, lots of people would have different ideas about how that might come about. I mean, broadly for me, that means increasing equality, sharing um, the resources. There's enough for everyone in this world to go around, but a lot of it's hoarded um, and ending, you know, sort of discrimination. And look, there's lots of ways to get there. Um, personally, I kind of favour collective efforts on the basis of, uh, you know, that it's practical. You know, our opponents have the sort of guns and the money and the think tanks and the advisors and and the media and so forth, but we've got the potential power of numbers and our creativity and the resources that we can bring together um, as people. So, yeah, and also I think... You know, I favour collective solutions because we need to bring, you know, at least a section of the population along in the long run, um, you know, and, and ultimately if we want to have a fairer, kinder, just world, then that requires the most people as possible to sort of understand the issues, propose solutions and, and take part. So why is it important to, I guess... Um, know about this stuff in common and and so forth well i guess the commons library we we kind of draw on the idea 
of the commons, um, which kind of covers the things that were originally held in common. And, and some of these things we still have access to without paying for, and some of them we don't. So air, water, land, culture, um, ideas. So some of these things have been privatised, you know, over the millennia and over hundreds of years and exploited. But, you know, the idea is that they should be held in common. They should be for everyone. So similarly, ideas about changing the world and kind of information about how to get there, we believe should be held collectively and should be shared and made available as much as possible. And again, this is kind of practical, you know, if we want education, empowerment and so forth, you know, the more people who are contributing ideas to that and the more people who are sharing ideas, um, the better we're going to be. But it's also, I guess, an ethical thing. So so in terms of the commons, we're um, free of cost. We don't operate for profit. Um, we do our best to be equitable, inclusive and accessible. Um, our goal is to be beneficial to many. We, we try to bring together knowledge and information from many people and, and our culture is within the, you know, library is to is to sort of celebrate cooperation and and collaboration well that's that's an amazing goal i mean an amazing mission and i think that's something we don't do a lot of generally in our lives so that's it's it's a fantastic aim and mission so how how does documenting struggle um help us achieve social change Okay, so um, I guess there's the aspect of um, there's a few different things that the that that the library does in terms of that. A lot of our focus is on kind of how tos, guides, tips. You know, so it's it's pretty much that kind of practical side, and and a lot of our focus, but not entirely, is kind of on campaigning. So having that. You know, we try to bring that information, as much of that information together in one place so that people can can access it, compare different ideas about it. We don't push a particular formula. We're not prescriptive about, you know, it must be done this way. If there was one way to do things, we'd either be there or or our website would be a very small one. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so sort of for all those reasons, uh, it's important to sort of give people information. I guess there's the old classic thing about not reinventing the wheel you know a lot of the time you know we try to appeal both to people who are I guess new to you know trying to change things and and people who've been experienced but if you are new to things and you're mainly operating on kind of instinct or if you've been involved for a long time and you're mainly operating on habit that's maybe not the most effective way to do uh, way to do things and I guess if if you have access to information about you know how to do these different things. Hopefully, you can skip some of the steps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and avoid some of the mishaps, I guess. Yeah, yeah. and 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 um, you know, even where you can't skip the steps, at least if you're aware, you know, that okay, uh, you know, I guess a classic sort of dilemma is, you know, do you engage? Okay, you've, there's an issue or a problem, so do you start off by engaging, you know, with the people, you, know, you work out who's who's responsible, who can make things change. Okay, well, do we go and talk to them? Do we try to, you know... And, Negotiate. Yeah, and obviously that might seem like an obvious first step, but sometimes that's a trap. They'll, they'll, they'll 
get you stuck in all sorts of processes and grind you down yeah. or just waste your time or, or whatever. So sometimes it's more important to start, you know, it might be more effective to start off with a protest or some sort of direct action to say, hey, we're here, we're not going away. Now we want to have a chat with you. But sort of making those decisions, yeah, so we've, we've got different tools that can help people kind of look at, well, how do you map out firstly, what's the problem, who's yeah. responsible and so forth, and then... You know, well, what is our first step? Maybe even if, like, oh, we do have to go through all those kind of processes of saying, oh, can you please do this, even even though, you know, you know they're not going to. Yeah. At least you're aware that you're not disappointed when they say yeah. no or they stuff you around, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. For, forearmed, uh, forewarned is forearmed. Sort of. Just as an aside, while, while you were answering the question, I was thinking, do you believe that we can reform our way to a better um, a better society, a, a more uh, equal, a more just society? Well, yeah, again, I mean, I suppose if I'm speaking with my Commons library hat on, yeah, yeah. Um, there's lots of different ways to to make change. And I guess, uh, you know, and we cover lots of different means um, to doing that, you know. So, you know, we've got resources on everything from sort of how to write a letter to a politician, but also how to run a protest camp or a blockade or how to be a street medic or how to help political prisoners, you know, but we've also got those things, you know, those very basic things like how to ring talkback radio, how to, you know, how to edit a, an effective video clip, how, yeah. how do you um, frame your message in a way that might make change. So there's sort of different, you know, and, and we also include stuff on theories of change, so different models, you know, whether, whether you know, reform is, is the way, whether, you know, more deeper structural change is needed or whether you can kind of achieve both those things, you know, kind of together. From my perspective, I, I think when movements are healthiest, I mean, ultimately, I think there needs to be quite deep and wide-ranging structural change. But I think when movements are healthiest is when you have multi-layered stuff going on. Yep. And, um, you know, ultimately, I guess maybe this isn't the greatest example because the, the movement in, in favour of freeing refugees, you know, hasn't won all of its goals and we still have, you know, a very kind of horrible setup in this country. But when that movement felt at its most dynamic there were people doing so many different things at so many different levels so you had lawyers appealing people's cases you had people marching in the streets you had people doing blockades out the front of detention centers you had people lobbying politicians you had people running you know support services for for refugees yeah. so that you know they'd have something <laughs> so that and, that sounds like a really well coordinated like attack on, yeah, on, on and in many ways, it, in some ways it was coordinated and in some ways it wasn't. It was like all these things were happening at once and and not all those parts of the puzzle necessarily agreed with the other oh, parts okay. of, of the puzzle, but it was a dynamic movement that was doing all those things so that when you had Phil Ruddock, when it, you, know, you yeah. had him coming out as the immigration minister and going, oh, these people, they're just protesting, you know, they should be, you know, helping these people with food and housing. It was like, well, hang on, mate. That's happening. <laughs> it's, it's not, yeah. you know, all these different things are happening. And that put them under a lot of pressure. It wasn't enough to change everything. It has achieved some things. But I guess that's an example of when I see, you know, like movements are at their sort of healthiest. Yeah. What, what do you think is the most important first step in, in, um, in any, in, okay, in campaigns? Yeah. In, so in, social, ju in social justice campaigns. 
so again, I guess you know, I know it's broad. Be bit, probably a bit annoying. And so we've got lots of different yeah, resources know. on the commons that achieve things in different ways. But I, but I guess you know one of the the common early steps in a lot of the kind of pathways and a lot of the manuals and a lot of the stuff that we share around organising is yeah I guess you know is that kind of mapping out at the beginning you know who who what is the problem yeah you know who is causing it who has to be moved and then also mapping out well who who are we <laughs> you know, who can move it what allies do we have and, and so forth so there's often this um concept of kind of pillars come up you know which which pillars of support can we draw on to make ourselves more effective and what pillars of support are uh, yeah who are our opponents are they opponents? Are they someone we can win round, or are yeah. they somebody you know we need to try and turn into allies, or do we need to try and negate? So that, I think that's quite crucial, and it's definitely something. I mean, I haven't been, you know, a lot of my role in more recent years has been doing history stuff and and working with the Commons to share knowledge. It hasn't been so much sort of boots on the ground campaigning, but in my experience of a you know of a lot of campaigning, we didn't really do that. I mean, we just a lot of things I've been involved in, we just sort of saw a wrong and went, we need to react to that. And yep. then, you know, the people around me, we had a particular way of doing that and we went and did it, but we didn't have much strategy. You know? yeah. And I think um, taking that time at the beginning, which can be difficult to do, I mean, you know, if you're in a crisis situation, you've got to react, but but taking that little bit of time at the beginning to sort of go, okay, what is it? What, you know, what's the picture here and what's the most effective way we can move forward? And look, Thankfully, there are lots of examples of that and there are lots of, um, you know, resources to help people with that. You just heard an interview, Spike's interview with Ian McIntyre from the Common Social Change Library. And they spoke about how it's a service that documents the collective wisdom of people who have engaged in social change struggles and campaigns in so-called Australia and around the world and is committed to making that information freely available to facilitate challenging social injustice. And for 100 years of radio, um, I wanted to share a little fun fact and... I was curious about this, even though I've been doing Thursday Breakfast for almost two years now, why it's called 3CR. Where does the three come from? You might be thinking to yourself, driving in the car, sitting at home with your coffee. The three is just the state postcode. Um, so a lot of <laughs> a lot of the radio stations uh, across so-called Victoria are like three blank. So it's three, state postcode and community radio. Um, now you say it out loud, you're like, oh, it was right there all along. My love was right there in front of me all along. Yeah, it's, um, I think it's the, the sort of history of radio in this place is really fascinating as well, seeing, um, you know, the first radio station, 2SB, I think, um, come on air in Sydney 100 years ago. Um, and it's now, you know, transformed over time to ABC Radio Sydney. But something that I wanted to share in terms of a little fact about radio in this place um, was the brilliance of Karma, the Central Australian Aboriginal Media Association, which is the first uh, 
Aboriginal-owned and operated radio station uh, in so-called Australia. It was established as 8 Kin FM, 100.5 FM in the 1980s, um, broadcast out of Alice Springs. And it has been um, an absolute powerhouse, like Karma Radio started up first, but there's been... um, you know, karma broadcasting across television, across um, across social media. Um, and so there's a huge media hub there, and it now reaches over 60,000 listeners in the Northern Territory, um, as well as 6,000 listeners across a third of Australia and uh, people online. And so much of their... Um, their media production is produced locally, it's multilingual, and involves as well upskilling members of the Aboriginal community um, to train Aboriginal media professionals um, through uh, through the station. So it is a really incredible um, enterprise, and I think has been so important in terms of reaching Aboriginal communities with vital news and information in um, you know in remote areas. Oh, um, and next up, I have a little excerpt from the NEMBC History of Ethnic Radio. I think this really describes um, how media was extremely white dominated for a long time, and really it still is. Um, So Arthur Athena was the longest serving, quote unquote, ethnic um, programmer in early Australian radio history. Uh, In 1956, he established his first Greek radio program called The Voice of Athena on Radio 6pm. And, quote, to run this program, Arthur Athens had to sign a contract with the commercial station, agreeing to the script being translated into English and presented to management for approval 24 hours before going to air. And similarly, only instrumental music was allowed to be broadcast as non-English words were prohibited. Um, Yeah, imagine that admin on top of everything else. It really is just uh, terrible. So in the 60s, there was increased demand to make changes. Um, Obviously, we have a huge community of people in Australia that don't speak English and that population was growing uh, and... ABC's solution to that demand was to create a 10% slot of non-English speaking radio. So, <laughs> Yeah, and I think even anecdotally, like when uh, like me and my mom first, you know, came here, um, even like SBS radio and like having like, um, and 3CR too, just having like Punjabi Hindi language programs was so vital to like, you know, you feel so out of place when you're here and having just one voice that feels familiar can mean the absolute world. So mm. I think it's really amazing that we have so many language programs on 3CR too. Yeah, especially for people that, you know, make the migration journey without family or without connections here already, being able to have that as, as a touch point and a way to just stay across what's happening in your local area in your own language. I can't believe I didn't think of this earlier. I really should have uh, tried to bring my uh, footy and radio passions together when I came up with my fact, but I've just come up 
with another one. I mean, I don't think this is a fact as much as a thing that I think is very cool, but um, listeners may be familiar as well with Yolnu Radio, which broadcasts out of Darwin. Uh, it's a community radio station that provides information, music, and entertainment to Yolnu people of Northeast Arnhem Land and broadcasts in the languages of the Yolnu people. Um, and one of my favorite um, radio collaborations that Yolnu Radio does is that it broadcasts the AFL Dreamtime match um, directly out of um, out of yeah well whichever stadium it's being played at so the Dreamtime match is gosh who plays the Dreamtime match is it is it Richmond and Essendon I think you're asking the wrong person over yeah. here, but um, <laughs> I'm going to trust you. I, I think it is. Ditto. I think it is. Um, and the Dreamtime game is I, it's really awesome because, um, like, when you're watching the footy, uh, there are these cuts to Yolnu radio broadcasters who are um, commentating in, um, yeah, in language, and that's going out to communities. And I think it is just a really you know, like there are there are so many, many steps that the AFL has to take towards uh, repairing the immense harm that it has inflicted on Indigenous communities and to really honour um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players within the footy. But this is one of those amazing windows of um, the cultural significance and the importance um, as a community touchstone of footy, um, especially considering that so many of the best players in the league come from uh, the Northern Territory and Tiwi Islands. Um, should I jump into the Beyond the Bars launch? Yes, because I think, you know, following on from that point, it is so important to support in the ways that people need and no, one of the best shows that do it is Beyond the Bars. Um, and you recently went to their launch, CD launch. Yeah, yeah, tell us all about it. It looked really amazing. Oh, my gosh. It was so special. It's, it's actually uh, – so I've been listening to Bits of Beyond the Bars um, since coming to 3CR. Um, but last week was the first time that I attended a CD launch. And it was at Auntie Alma's Gathering Place, so just um, outside Darty Monwaro in Preston. And it was just – so amazing um, listening to the launch and excerpts from people inside. So for people that aren't familiar, Beyond the Bars has been running since, uh, I think, 2000, 2001. Um, I think this is either the 22nd or 23rd. And don't uh, judge me for not knowing because I will also say that MC Shirley Hood uh, on the night was not sure if it was the 22nd or 23rd as well. Um, and she she's a, a programmer on it, so... Uh, but Beyond the Bars is an incredible program that takes Aboriginal presenters and producers into prisons to speak with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that are incarcerated in so-called Victoria to share their stories. Um, it's an immense labor of love and of care, um, and it really allows people to remember that you know there there's a community that loves them and cares about them outside um, and that they can stay connected with through uh, the NADOC week recording sessions that occur every year and so you know this year uh, presenters I think were uh, MC Shirley Hood, uh, Uncle Kucha Edwards and also uh, Chrissy Austin who uh, spoke at the launch last week with Kucha about the 
the wonderful experience of being able to walk in and walk out of the prison uh, while presenting and the immense pride and love shown by the brothers inside who were able to see him walk out of those gates at the end of the recording session as well. And just what it means to people to know that there are folks from their community outside rooting for them, looking out for them and encouraging them to, you know, to remember that it's important for them to stay in touch with their culture and with their community. So I think it was a really, really special night um, to hear from from people and, and to hear excerpts from the recordings as well. And just such a vital space that I don't think would exist without the, um, the labor of community radio. 100%. And I think while you were talking on that, I remembered a fun fact as well that um, Uncle Kucha Edwards was actually my first interview on 3CR. That's true. It was so sweet and I was so nervous. Um, even though I love talking, I was like, I don't know if I can do this. But really throughout the entire interview, it was like he was consoling me saying like, it's all good. You got it. We're just having a yarn. Um, and that really put me at ease and just having like a really nice special moment with someone that I really look up to really showed me what community radio is all about. Um, talking to people that, you know, are in your community, people you look up to, people that do so much, um, and people you are in solidarity with. And I think that's really special. Every interview that you hear are often people that we really look up to, people we want to speak to, people that are doing great work for the community. But yeah, I wonder if you have any closing notes for that, Priya and Leela. Um, I, my, uh, closing note is just to point to something that I think will tie us into the next interview that Leela's going to be doing, which is to shout out uh, Radio 4MW, Mary Bawakai, Sima, Torres Strait Islander, um, yeah, Torres Strait Islander Radio, which was founded in 1985 and 4MW Radio uh, broadcasts out of the Torres Strait. It is a Torres Strait Islander run radio station. Um, and um, yeah, Listeners can check them out by heading to facebook.com forward slash 4MW radio to hear broadcasting out of the Torres Strait Islands. Um, but now maybe we cool. will go Thank to, you. yeah, we'll go to a CSA. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Salam be Hamegi. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. From a private life so public as the tabloids caught your tears being photographed how sad within how tragic 
but it doesn't have to be that way on the Burning Vinyl Alternative Music Program. Burning Vinyl, Fridays, 2 till 4pm on 3CR. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. So this morning, I am so excited to welcome two Guta Malaygal leaders, Wadawam Pabai Pabai and Wadawam Paul Kabai. In 2021, Uncle Pabai and Uncle Paul brought a class action known as the Australian Climate Case against the Commonwealth Government of so-called Australia. Today, we will hear from Uncle Pabai and Uncle Paul the direct impact that climate change is having on the Zenith Kez region, also known as Torres Strait, on the lives, cultures and futures of community. And we're also lucky to be joined by Ruby Mitchell from Grata Fund, a specialist non-profit litigation fund working to support the case. So welcome, Uncle Paul Kabai and Uncle Pabai Pabai. What an honour to have you on the show. Good morning. Good morning. I thought we could start off by both of you, uh, Uncle Paul and Uncle Pabai, just introducing yourselves and giving us a bit of background on how and why you came to lead the Australian climate case. Oh, yeah. Good morning again. Uh, my name is Uncle Paul Kabai. Uh, a bit of myself, I'm from Kudamaru uh, Galation of Saibai Island. Which up in the Torres Strait near Papua New Guinea border, and um, yeah, we're leading this case uh, because of our people in the region, in the Dallas mm. Nation, and uh, that's what we here for to lead uh, lead our people and make a voice to the government. Yeah, did you want to tell me a little bit about? how you actually got involved in this case. Where did it all begin? Well, it all began back in uh, 2021 when we and my colleagues were introduced to Guata, uh, uh, another uh, uh, organization. Uh, we were introduced by uh, uh, Uncle uh, Roddy Dillon from Obat. Mm-hmm. And um, Mr. Malwa Brauna, uh, we were introduced to Grata, uh, so we put our hands up because uh, of uh, our island. The, the tide level is rising, and 
only person, but we 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 put our hands there because our lands are sinking. So we 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 uh, we uh, get into Uncle uh, Rodney uh, and Manuak, uh, so we can represent. Uh, uh, we go outside, right? Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I'm I'm curious to hear more about your hometowns. Um, you know your country that you grew up on, uh, Boigu and Saibai. Um, maybe you can start with talking about Saibai. How has climate change affected your island home in particular? Oh yeah, it's 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 low lying island. It's about one point five, which is about sea level. Because of the water levels rising, during monsoon season, we have we have an inundation. And because of there's many river inlets around the island, water comes in through the river inlets and swamps. So we have uh, uh, the water running from inland and from the ocean. Because we're living on very narrow strip of land. Yeah. The land is... Uh, 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 it's been um, like uh, contaminated with salt, so there's no way uh, people on the island can do gardening. Yeah, like that. And uh, uh, in that innovation, uh, uh, we have uh, you know people that we have uh, at the seawall that just there built. So we, we, the water is still coming over, and uh, we still. Uh, Affected by that, yeah. And the erosion is the main problem on both islands. Yeah, yeah. I actually didn't know that um, part about the rivers um, flooding. So yeah, that just gives a better image for me to understand the actual extent of how climate change is impacting your homes. Um, and Uncle Pabai, did you want to speak a bit to? Boigu and what you've seen on your island. Yeah, uh, once again, good morning. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, my name is Uncle Tabai Tabai. I'm uh, I'm from the Gudamalugal Nation also, uh, uh, Boigu Island, which is located in the Torres Strait of Western. And uh, uh, well, a bit about myself. Uh, I'm the uh, traditional owner uh, for Boigu, and uh, Boigu Island, Boigu is a uh, low-lying island as well, so it's surrounded by mangroves, mud, and sun, and um, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm the native as well uh, for the uh, climate change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Um, so... Boigu and Saibai, they share a lot of the same kind of issues when it comes to erosion and inundation from ocean waters. Um, I am interested in hearing a little bit more about, I guess, connection to country. Like when I was writing this, I was thinking, you know, the settler perspective, the white perspective land is seen as just something to live on, something to buy and sell or own. And I know that a big part of this case, I read some of your affidavits and I could see that a big part of this case that you're bringing rejects that idea. And I was curious to know, 
Can you explain why preserving country is actually about more than just having a place to live? Uh, as, as we can see that uh, uh, the land is very important for us uh, because uh, we, we are the people uh, of the culture. Culture is the, is the uh, main important role that uh, uh, we, we are having in our communities. Yeah. And uh, as you can see uh, from the from the land to the sky uh, to the sea, that uh, we are the people uh, uh, of the culture. That uh, if we are forced to leave uh, our own uh, homeland, uh, and uh, we will lose everything in in our in ourselves uh, according to our identity, our culture. Um, this is why it's very important to us that. Uh, uh, it is uh, protected uh, our culture because uh, our identity and our culture are completely linked uh, into the land and the sea. And the uh, the um, climate change is also impacting the land and the sea, which means that it is been threatening uh, our culture. For example, uh, uh, I'll just say that uh, the guy that uh, are reading the stars. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, that's a start that we connected. Uh, uh, this generation has been, uh, uh, you know, handed down from our our forefather mm. to uh, generation because it's all uh, damaged by the uh, climate change because the weather patterns uh, uh, for the culture and hunting, hunting that um, passed down uh, from generation to generation. And this giving us the opportunity. Uh, uh, we don't want to. Uh, we don't want to lose our land because uh, we'll be losing uh, every of uh, those uh, identities. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just land at stake here. From that uh, kind of white perspective, it's actually connection to your history, culture, and identity. And I know that um, the specific island custom that different communities practice around Zenodith Kes region, you know, those customs have a direct relationship to the place that they're happening. So, yeah, that's I think that's a really important part of the case to recognise. Now, this, this... We're in part two of the hearings. So the first hearings were actually back in June and they happened on country, which is a first for Commonwealth law, you know, like the islands actually became the courtroom, right? Can you can you explain why it was so important for the court to witness country and what was happening to country? Um, uh, yes, because um, the first hearing uh, uh, for the evidence hearing, uh, we, uh, we did took the court, the federal court, uh, to our communities, uh, uh, to Boigu and uh, to Saibai. Mm. The whole picture, uh, this is why we bring the court out to the communities to see the clear, visible sight uh, for the judge and also the government lawyers to see uh, that uh, we are telling the truth about our community. 
yeah. that are being impacted and damaged by the climate change. And this is why the government have its own sightseeing and seeing what's happening uh, to our community. Yeah, yeah. And then to, to kind of support that first set of hearings, this week scientists and climate experts gave evidence in Nam, Melbourne, and I'm sure you both, Uncle Pabai and Uncle Paul, have spent a lot of time sitting in court in the last two weeks. Uh, and I, this next question I'm wondering, Ruby, you're welcome to speak to this as well if you want to, but this is really open to all of you. Do you have any notable highlights from these most recent hearings? Any um, notable evidence that was brought by these experts and scientists? Yeah, of course. It's been it yeah it has it's been a big difference to experiencing the on country hearings in June for sure. Um, it's a lot more kind of professional and traditional traditional lawyer like, I suppose and. The evidence is very technical and scientific, but I think our overall takeaway has been that the science is incredibly strong and clear, um, and they are basically in consensus that uh, the you know the forest traders at risk of going underwater um, if we don't radically kind of change what we're doing. Yeah, uh, the mission. So that's been quite hard to hear, um, but you know, in the same way, you know, the legal team and our lawyers are doing really amazing, and the witnesses have been amazing. Um, maybe some notable things has been, uh, you know, Professor David Caroli, who's a um, renowned climate scientist, told the court that climate change is a worldwide problem, but individual governments have to fix it. Um, and he kind of said that Australian governments can actually help to stop the global temperature rising, mm-hmm. and. He kind of mentioned that we can keep, you know, if we exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius, it's still possible to um, kind of bring it back to under that number. Um, so that was different. Yeah, and this, you know, there was some strong Professor Malt Meinhausen. He was amazing in kind of using some strong analogies to kind of describe what's happening. And he basically was talking about the government's budgets and his, saying, you know, it's taking too long for us to stop the temperature rising. Um, and he kind of likened it to a car racing and speeding towards the cliff. Um, and he said if it doesn't leave enough time to slow down, it will drive right off the cliff. So, yeah, that's been a bit tricky to hear, but um, I wonder if Uncle Paul, Uncle Kaba, you can talk about maybe the marine biology that you've learnt about and maybe um, hearing from the, about the seawall. That's been interesting too. Yeah, well, that was the uh, the project uh, that uh, infrastructure in our communities as well, uh, the seawall. And uh, uh, we do have, uh, uh, we heard the evidence from the uh, coastal engineering like Steve. Uh, Steve, sorry, who who give us the evidence about the seawall and the flooding. uh, And... That's giving us uh, the chance that, uh, well, well, I can say that uh, this, you know, it's not enough uh, because uh, uh, we're still in, 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 a, in a way of seeing that uh, uh, the water are their own ways to still coming over over the seawall, and that that's uh, that's giving the. Uh, especially on the 
very rapid season that uh, we always face in uh, through the years. Every year that goes through that, every monsoon season we are facing that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's really scary. Yeah, because you can only b- build the seawalls so high, you know. Absolutely, and yeah, and then you know, all it's been an interesting time learning about all the different evidence for sure. And I think yesterday was a really prominent day in the hearings. Um, that was quite exciting for our legal team. Um, we had some evidence from Kelly Pierce who worked on the. Um, UN Privacy Task Force um, back in and um, was a part of releasing a port report in 2015, which kind of informed the, the Paris COP21 budget, uh, kind of our climate emission budget and our targets. And basically, yeah, she admitted that um, the report uh, was to justify a target already set rather than to advise um, of that target. So that was a pretty... <laughs> wild thing to hear in terms of those processes that have determined, you know, what, what the government is considering when they're setting those targets. That was yeah. quite shocking to hear. Um, so there's been some strong things like that that have come out that are looking good for the case as a bystander, but, you know, it's um, highly complex and very different to the on-country hearings. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you for giving us um, that overview of what's been happening in court. Now, the next question, um, Uncle Popeye, Uncle Paul, I don't know who wants to answer first, but I wanted to know the history of First Nations leadership in climate justice, you know, Eddie Mabo, Eddie Mabo's wins in court, um, in land rights justice, has that impacted the way that you lead and the way that you've led this case as well? Well, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm here. Um, uh, since, uh, when, uh, Eddie Marble, uh, stepped, stepped into this action, and, uh, what I believe and what I know that, uh, uh, is, is, has been doing a great, great job for the Torres Strait Islanders and his own community mm. and, uh, around the world. That uh, he, he showed he showed the love of the Torres Strait because um, uh, now and today uh, we're talking about Eddie Marble that uh, uh, throughout all the Torres Strait nation that uh, 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 to know that what he has been done to the Torres Strait Islanders. Yeah, yeah, it was a big um, part of truth-telling about colonialism and what really happened here in what we now call Australia. So it's really, really inspiring to see you both, Uncle Paul and Uncle Pabai, walking in Eddie Marbo's shoes and bringing this case that will actually affect the whole world, you know? Like, if this is successful, then climate laws, they impact the whole world, whether or not they're being implemented in Torres Strait, Zenith Kez, or somewhere else in the world. So that's really inspiring. And just to wrap up, I was wondering, what can we do to support um, the Australian climate case? Can we give our perspective on how climate change has affected us? And where would we do that? 
Well, um, the way to uh, support this case is to have a better message passed to uh, Australian government. Uh, yeah, absolutely. In, in that way, the message would be like the government, uh, we can't wait anymore, is for climate action. So we need to have, we need to put a stop. And we need to pass this message to Prime Minister, everyone, maybe who's listening out there. It's yeah. a stop. Yeah, we need, this is urgent. We don't have time to wait anymore. It is, it is urgent. You can't wait anymore. Yeah. So my message, I think, is to uh, 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 the, the way of support. To support us, let, let's have a, have a better voice. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. And the way you can sign up to support um, Uncle Paul and Uncle Pabai um, is at gratafund.org.au slash stand underscore with underscore us. Or you yeah. can go to our social media page at Australian Climate Case. Um, where there's a link where you can follow and to sign up in solidarity. And Thank you so much. Doing um, the lead up to the next hearings in April is. Be collecting um, climate testimonies from people all around Australia. Um, we've already got a map up on our website. Um, where you can see people's climate testimonies from around Australia and the Pacific. Thank you so much, Ruby. We will include all the links to those in our podcast, so you'll be able to listen back to this interview on the podcast as well. I'll let you know when it's up. And, yeah, what an honour to have you on. Waduam, pabai, pabai, waduam, Paul, kabai. Thank you so much, Ruby. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. You have a great day. Thank you. We just heard from Gudamalagal leaders Wadawam Pabai Pabai and Wadawam Paul Kabai, who brought the climate case against Australia um, in 2021. And today we heard the direct impact that climate change is having on the Zenith Kez region, also known as Torres Strait, on the lives, culture and futures of community there. And we were also joined by Ruby Mitchell from Grada Fund, who is supporting the case. You're listening to 3CR. The new Climate Action Radio Show will surprise you. Well, first of all, I'm not a believer in global warming. I'm not a believer in man-made global warming. Global warming. And so you'll hear voices from all around Australia and overseas that are taking all types of climate action, whether it's stopping coal and gas, whether it's building a new model of society, or whether it's just sustaining you in the grief you may feel about the climate destruction we're facing. And in that spirit, here's a poem by Rumi. Stop, take a breath, for you are drunk, and we are at the edge of the roof. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit wildlife emergency response service dedicated to helping wildlife in need across Victoria. Our volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned wildlife. If you see wildlife that may need our help, on the road, in your backyard or in the bush, please contact us immediately on 8400 7300. 
That's 84007300. To donate or to become a volunteer, visit wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. And now for a very special interview with Pilar Aguilera uh, for the 100-year anniversary of the first radio broadcast in Australia on the 23rd of November 1923. And since that time, radio has seen a source of entertainment and information and companionship to generations of people. And we speak to 3CR Chairperson Pilar, who is participating in the discussion of 100 years of radio Tuning in or fading out radio past, present and future at the Eureka Centre tonight in Ballarat. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Pilar. Thanks for having me. What an honour. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, first up, what do you think are, you know, would... I'll start again. Um, because I love radio so much, my brain's getting all frazzled. Um, yeah, I was wondering what your... What you what you think are the strengths or the triumphs of radio in this country over the last hundred years, and do you think radio will maintain its relevance in people's lives into the future? Oh, that's a big question. Um, thanks for having me back on Thursday breakfast. This is where I started um, radio about twenty years ago, so that's really fun. Uh, strengths of radio over the last hundred years? Well, that's a big question. There's so many. I would say just one of them is the increasing in listenership, um, which is, you know, started with, you know, 100 years ago with a few hundred listeners on 2SB in Sydney to thousands, millions of people accessing it um, to now. Um, and the ability to be able to, commu- to uh, connect communities and a diversity of communities. So I think that's the strength. I've always thought that radio over any other medium is so accessible. It's easy to access. It's pretty much free for people to access. It always has been, you know, through the creation of even pirate radio stations where people have been able to stay informed with things. Um, and, yeah, I think it's it's so vitally important Um the second part of that question was the relevance of radio. I think it'll continue to be relevant, um, especially through the different mediums. Um, there's been a lot of talk in the sector of late, uh, you know, people say maybe a newer generation not knowing or not listening to live radio. Um, of course, that's not the case with us on 3CR, but... Um, a lot of people tend to listen at times that suit them rather than at times when the program is on. So I think, you know, the relevance is still there. But how people access the way they listen, I think that would probably change. And, I mean, we have this great new um, app, Community Plus app, where you can listen from your phone or computer and it's much easier to tune into 3CR um, you know, at, at any time. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think the relevance is still there. The need is still there. The way it's accessed is probably, that's the, the big difference. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I think it is, 
you know, we are leaning into a time where we want to check in where we can. Um, and that's kind of the beauty of the podcast as well. And I think you're so right that it is free, it's accessible, it's so diverse. Um, and those kind of key points really carry it through. Um, for the second question, I was just kind of wondering about what's kind of what's the approach to like radio licensing in this country? Like, should we be fighting for publicly funded community radio, or what's kind of the health of state and local community radio? Yeah, um, the funding happens in three ways in this country for licenses. We've got the commercial licenses, the public licenses, and the community licenses. So obviously we fit under the community licenses. Um, there is uh, the community sector has now been operating for about fifty years, and it's grown, you know, immensely over that time. Um, there's much more interest in the community broadcasting sector and the federal government has never been so interested in that sector because there's a recognition of the value of community broadcasting and the connections with different communities. And those communities are very, very broad and vast, as you can imagine. Uh, we fall under the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia and... Um, this year, they have launched a roadmap um, for the sector, which takes us into 2033. And so they've got four priorities for that sector, which is growing capabilities, celebrating identity and demonstrating impacts, amplifying diverse voices, and securing um, our capacity to meet community needs. So I think the sector is definitely growing. Um, we, um, 3CR, um, we apply for many competitive grants in terms of our funding. We also get uh, a third of that funding from our listenership. So from our listenership and from our successful radio songs every year, we know that people listen and we know that people tune in and we know that we've got a really connected community. We also have another third, which is a diverse income stream. So... In terms of whether or not we fight for publicly funded radio, I say yes to that always. Whether or not that would happen in this climate is much more difficult. Um, and I guess the only thing I can think of that would sort of raise alarm bells for me would be if it was a publicly funded, then are we then truly independent and community-controlled. 3CR is the first community-owned and community-run station in Australia. And our independence and our um, has always been what makes us incredibly unique because we don't have that um, those um, restrictions that, say, a public broadcaster has. Yeah, I think touching um, on... Um, that point is we have such a strong identity. We're independent. It's community driven. How do you how do you think that we can kind of protect that, or really maybe protect is the wrong word. Like really make sure that we live up to those values every day. Because also there is a need to raise funds and maintain audiences that sometimes can be a pressure on community radio too. Yeah. Well, um, I think firstly, um, keep doing what we're doing, <laughs> keep growing. <laughs> yep. I think 
I think one of our things is that we need to, the way that we grow is telling people that 3CR exists. You know, I think a lot of people don't know AM, they don't know 3CR, and this has been the case ever since I've been involved for the last however many years, um, and probably even since the inception of 3CR in 76, that um, people don't know we exist. And so the way we grow is telling people about it, and we, we're getting better at that. We need to get even better. So even things like at the recent Palestine rallies, uh, we now have produced a little uh, postcard to tell people to listen to Palestine Remembered on a Saturday morning because, you know, many people don't know that that's the only Palestinian voice, you know, community-run program on Australian airwaves at the moment. So, um, yeah, and and I think as well... um, you know, we need to... Um, our volunteership hasn't been decreasing. In fact, it's been increasing. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that makes it really attractive to people because we do take a clear stance on social and political events and people find a community at 3CR, you know, whatever that community may be, but we, we seem to represent such a breadth of diversity that um, people can find a space here and develop media skills, develop media literacy. There's a volunteer opportunity. And I think people don't know enough of that part of it. You know, they think 3CR is just broadcasting, but underneath that, as, you know, the Thursday Brekkie presenters would know, you come in and you learn things. Mm. You learn skills that are super valuable, not only in organising in the community, but also to producing a show and putting it to air. Yeah, absolutely. You've really highlighted so many benefits to doing radio, particularly on 3CR. It's social, it's collective, it's strong social justice values, and it's such a breadth of like topics that we cover, people that we can meet, people that we can talk to. Um, And I think for the last question, just to round us off, it is 100, which is, is that a century? It is! (laughs) I got it right! Um, What are we doing to celebrate a whole century of radio and how can people support 3CR? Um, And yeah, celebrate it. Well, support 3CR by becoming a subscriber, donate, (laughs) listen, tell everyone else to listen and become subscribers. Um, There is an event tonight at the Eureka Centre in Ballarat, a little event uh, organised by um, a group of people. Uh, There'll be four speakers on one of them. And it's uh, an event to mark the 100th anniversary of the first radio broadcast. Um, it's going to be like a um, discussion, a public discussion. The Eureka Centre always hosts public discussions like that. And it's nice to have 3CR represented there to get across, um, you know, that we are different to public-funded radio um, and that what we do is vitally important and always has been. So, yes, that's what's happening today. Um And, yes, support 3CR. 3CR is a beacon of hope in a desolate landscape. (laughs) 
100%. I feel that in my heart. And thank you so much for taking the time out to come on the show. And we'll have lots of the links in the show notes. But yes, subscribe, donate, tell your friends about the show, listen in. I think we're pretty coolio. But thanks so much for joining us here today, Pilar. Hope you have a lovely day. Thank you for having me Thursday breakfast. No worries. Thank you. And we just spoke to Pilar Aguilera, who is the chairperson for 3CR, to celebrate the 100 years of radio tuning in or fading out. And now we will go on to our very last wonderful interview. Yes, thank you, Inez. And it was fantastic to hear from uh, Pilar about the importance of Thursday breakfast, I'd like to think, uh, but the importance of 3CR overall. So you can head to 3cr.org.au to find out information about how to subscribe and also how to donate to keep us going. But now we're going to go to our final interview for today, and that is with documentary maker, writer, and broadcaster on 3CR's Women on the Line program, Senya, who's joining us to discuss the upcoming NARM premiere of the documentary Fly in Power, which weaves the story of Asian sex workers' community care, solidarity, and organizing for justice and labor rights. And this documentary, which Sen produced, follows Charlotte, a Korean massage worker and core organizer of Red Canary Song, a social justice collective of Asian diasporic massage workers, sex workers and allies who base build through mutual aid. And through Charlotte's story, we learn how the incarceration system is pitted against Asian migrant women and their survival. So good morning. Good morning. First, I just want to say thank you for um, pronouncing my name so correctly. It's really (laughs) rare. But yes, thank you so much for that pronunciation and that introduction. (laughs) Not a problem. Um, That's how you know that I've listened to your shows as well. but yeah, um, it's so good to to be back in uh, back sharing space with you um, behind a radio panel. Um, so I wanted to start off with a, maybe a reflection from you on community radio and independent media as spaces for relatively autonomous creative production for people from marginalized communities, because I know that some of the incredible work that is um, is sort of consolidated in Fly in Power has also come through in the way that you've approached broadcasting at 3CR over the years. Yeah, so I was thinking about it, and it's actually been 10 years for me at 3CR, so um, a tenth of, I guess, the 100 years that we're talking about here. Hopefully I'll live to 100 to be able to you know, keep broadcasting longer. Um, so, yeah, that's really exciting to think about, and I was thinking of how um, a lot of the – I started in community radio here at 3CR on Queering the Air, which is still going, which is amazing, Um And I think it's a really important space to have in public broadcasting. It's such a great space to learn how to, firstly at 3CI, like to be with people and to be with people from different communities. Um, And then also all the learning opportunities you get through interviewing. That was a real highlight for me when I started on Queering the Air and then transitioning to Women on the Line. And um, that kind of thoughtfulness and care that um, we all do in our interviewing and that we get... um, we get we do that through training but also through practice right like we just get better each time and having each other through to support each other is like a um it's what makes 3CR what's so wonderful so um I definitely carried that through my work with Fly and Power and making the film yeah 
Yeah. And I'm really, really excited to talk about it. I know um, when you initially announced there was going to be a NARM premiere, I was like, I'm booking it in. I'm booking in an interview. <laughs> um, so I thought um, it'd be great to hear about some of the origins and the process of crafting Fly in Power and the importance in that process of Asian sex workers' lived experience in both the narrative focus, but also the creative direction of the documentary. Yeah, so um, our film was, so and originally Yin Q, who's one of the directors of the film, um, had already already had a producer on the film. But that producer actually stepped back and said to Yin that um, I think it would be great if the whole crew was Asian. So, um, yeah, so what ended up happening was Yin brought me on as the producer and it turns out that um, the other filmmakers, Yun Grace uh, Na um, and Mong Wen Kao, who uh, originally was one of the editors on the film, um, and also Kai Yang. Um, yeah, we all knew each other through community when we were when I was living over there in New York, and um, it just worked out really well. And all of us like queer and trans Asian, so um, and more than half of the production team are former or current sex workers. So it really was a film. I think the first film made um, by Asian sex workers about Asian sex workers. So um, that was a huge uh, thing to be working with. And I think that through the process, like, um, I guess, sorry, could you repeat like the other elements of the question? Yeah, for sure. I just wanted to hear about how it's sort of, um, how that uh, that lived expertise in the production team, but also, you know, through uh, the, the folks that are featured in the in the documentary shaped that narrative and creative direction. Oh, yeah. So um, it originally was meant to be a short film, but I think after we met Charlotte during the pandemic and it was a time when a lot of um, Asian massage parlor workers were out of work, Um, their work wasn't deemed essential in that kind of way. So they turned to other forms of labor to um, make ends meet, but also mutual aid. And we saw um, mutual aid has actually been around for much longer than the pandemic, but it became very popular during the pandemic. And it's a very common, I guess, um, tool of care for sex workers historically. Um, I'm thinking about like the time in like during the Vietnam War where the US um, came in, there was like sex workers who came together to like look after each other's babies, for example, where so the other one could work um, and providing mutual care in that kind of way and mutual aid. So it's not something that's unfamiliar to sex workers. And I think that through that process, um, yeah, we met Charlotte and it became very clear from early on that Charlotte, well, actually Charlotte was initially hesitant about joining Red Canary Song. Um but because of Yanhu, who is who speaks fluent Korean and is part of the group, um, was able to just connect with Charlotte on a personal level. So um, yeah, Charlotte came to a meeting, and through um, becoming involved, would see like the kind of community and the the I guess the atmosphere that was created in that environment. So like people would be eating meals together while having a meeting. Um, people would be breastfeeding, you know, children were there. So it was really a kind of a very warm environment to be in. And, and Charlotte, um, yeah, was just so loved by, and is so loved by Red Canary Song and um, is now one of the core um, outreach workers there. So um, in the film, you'll see that she's really leading a lot of 
the activities, mutual aid activities. Like she's an amazing cook. Um, she can make a huge batch of kimchi and to feed, yeah, yeah, hundreds of people. Um, so yeah, that was all really important. And I think we wanted to really detail all those aspects of care that Asian massage workers, sex workers, and also like the things around Asian culture, like that we um, grew up with, like knew how to like knowing how to feed like 20 people at least. Those kind of things that like a rite of passage mm-hmm. that you go through. So um, we're kind of using that to, I guess, speak against the more harmful narratives of anti-trafficking, which... Yeah, I can talk more about. Yeah, actually, I was I was hoping that you could um, briefly speak to that because you know the documentary really centers care and agency and dignity of Asian sex workers and body workers in that production against those carceral and deficit narratives, uh, particularly as framed through anti-trafficking um, legislation and court um, proceedings, which you know becomes a way that. Uh, like a, a really harmful lens that so many uh, Asian migrant sex workers and body workers are seen through. Definitely. I guess in the context of um, Turtle Island specifically, I guess the film is set in New York, um, but we have an academic in the film. She's not a sex worker, but Red Canary Song is also made up of Asian allies as well who are supportive of sex workers. So she speaks on the film and she really gives a great grounding on how anti-trafficking narratives and policies really harm not just Asian sex workers, but migrant workers. And because it's about um, border control and deportation, it's not actually um, about helping um, say if there was a victim of trafficking, not actually helping them, but actually policing them and um, uh, and then sending them back to their home country, which in many cases um, is a dangerous situation because the reason why people migrate in the first place is because they're looking for better opportunities mm. or because they've been forced out of a situation that they can no longer find viable in their home country. So... Um, There's something that's really amazing about what Elena says in the film is that she quotes um, scholar Lindsay Buton, who really looks at the framework of anti-trafficking in the context of modern day slavery. And she's really, this scholar, Lindsay, is looking at how um, anti-trafficking laws are a way for the US government to kind of um, uh, get out of reparations for um, black people who had gone through the Atlantic trade slave uh, slave trade. So in that case, um, where Asian sex workers or migrant workers are deemed worthy of rescue, um, black people are not. They're criminalized for simply like walking down the street. um, And so there's a whole different narrative there. And really, um, the film doesn't dwell too much into that, but I think it's a really good point to make and something that we can think about in the longer case of like how anti-trafficking laws work in different Mm. countries. Yeah, it's like kind of that juxtaposition of like paternalistic quote-unquote care versus paternalistic violence. Um, And it's really like a spectrum of violence uh, that, you know, that captures different populations in different ways. Now, I know we have to wrap up shortly, so I was wondering if you could briefly tell us about how the documentary has been received so far, because I know it's already won the LA Asian and Pacific Islander Film Festival Grand Jury Prize for Best Documentary, but I was also keen to hear about how it's been um, received by peers and also where people can find out more about the screening. 
Yeah, we were super stoked to to win that award. Um, and I think even more so because that festival really uh, worked thoroughly with us to develop a screening that wasn't just like, oh, about putting on a film and maybe like a typical Q&A after, but really bringing people into discussion about some of the themes into the documentary, which was totally optional for the audience to participate in. But I'm really glad that they put in that effort to do that and, yeah, to do something different. Um, other than that, I think one of the one of the earlier screenings that we had, um, which I got to attend, was at um, after we had our premiere in Flushing, Queens, where a lot of the massage workers work, we had a screening at Brown University. And um, because of Elena's connections there, there were her cohort, cohort of Asian students who were studying um, the things that she teach, but also um, a group of black trans sex workers who came to the screening. And we had um, we shared dinner and discussion afterwards. And it was just really great to be in the room with them to um yeah, for them to also learn about what's going on in the Asian sex worker community, but also to share their experience with um, policing and I guess the laws that affect them as workers. So I think those are things that I'm excited about um, to actually bring more sex workers into um, film screenings and discussions around the film. Awesome. And so finally, now I know that this screening is going to be um, – Next Thursday, the 30th of November, going to be co-hosted by Vixen and Red Canary Song. Um, and you're giving away two tickets. Yes. Um, so thank you very much. So uh, just to remind listeners, you can get those tickets. Uh, you can claim those tickets by DMing Thursday Breakfast on Instagram at at 3CR Thursday Breakfast. So get in quickly to go in the running to claim them. And we will, uh, yeah, we'll announce the winners, I guess, next, next Thursday. Um, but thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. It's been awesome to be here live in the studio. Yes, and um, that was documentary maker, writer and broadcaster on 3CR's Women on the Line program, Senya, who joined us to talk about the upcoming NARM premiere of the documentary Fly in Power, which weaves a story of Asian sex workers' community care, solidarity and organising for justice and labour rights. CCR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard.
Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.